Hi and welcome back to the We Do Science Guru Performance podcast. This is episode 88. Uh, I of course am Laurent Bannock and today I am bringing to you part three of this uh, special series on nutrition and athletic performance with Dr. Travis Thomas. Um, hi Travis, how are you doing? Good afternoon Laurent. Hi, well. this is good. This is good. So we promised each other this is going to be the third and final episode of this um, of this series so we shall do our best but just to remind folks um, just in case they have stumbled upon this episode without listening to episodes one and two we are discussing um, nutrition and athletic performance which is a joint position stand between uh, the American College of Sports Medicine the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the Dietitians of Canada um, and uh, your co-authors were Louise Burke and Kelly Ann Erdman. Um, so just just quickly, we won't recap um, on each episode because um, the listeners can just go to each episode 86 and 87 and look at the topics on, um, on our website there. But perhaps you could just remind us why... Um, um, sorry, the difference between a position stand and, and a regular... Uh, paper, just just so we're uh, right on point with why we're doing this. Sure. Yeah. This this position paper is a, a, a basically a new version, a revamped version from the 2009, uh, the previous position paper, and it uses um, a an evidence uh, based analysis of um, literature spanning um, from 2006 to uh, current times, looking at all the major uh, emerging themes in nutrition. And trying to package, package that into a position, uh, not a practice paper, but a position that covers all the, the key areas of, of sports nutrition. And it, you know, it's a huge topic, and we've discussed um, before, of course, that it's you know it's the new boy on the block. It's a very emerging field. There is a lot of um, new research that's come out there, but a lot of this research is um, in its infancy. And the reason why you guys would have done a position stand, of course, would be to clarify what we think we know, sorry, to differentiate what we think we know and what we really, really can be confident, at least, um, as far as those of us that are practitioners or um, consumers, if you like, of sports nutrition advice, recommendations, that sort of thing. Um, It's very important to have that position stand. And I've done loads of episodes on all sorts of topics from sort of molecular sides of sports nutrition to all sorts of different angles on physiology and so on. But the reason why I wanted to do this was because as I just inferred, there's a lot of stuff that you'll hear about, that you can read about. There's lots of people um, delivering nutrition uh, for sports purposes or sports and exercise purposes information from a potentially a, a sort of a factual point of view when that may not be correct. There's a lot of mixed advice and recommendations and um, and um, I felt that it was important that we had this discussion over these three episodes to clarify you know where we are and what we really do know um, with this with, with these topics so in episode 86 we covered largely um, um, uh, you know the, the, the overview um, what's new the emerging trends perspectives in sports nutrition and what the whole point of this and we discussed you know the the whole evidence base and how you guys sifted your way through that evidence which was very interesting um in um episode uh, two we got into theme one which was about um nutrition for athlete preparation and today we're going to get into themes two three and four which is um mostly going to be about theme two which is on actual performance nutrition um, and we will delve also into some um, some uh, some of the items you covered on special populations. And also, if we have time, um, I did want to discuss also the roles and responsibilities of those professionals dishing out sports nutrition advice and scope of practice and that sort of thing. So, um, Travis, let let's get straight into theme two. Then, um, in the last episode, we talked all about preparing athletes. Um, now we're talking about performance nutrition. Could you just differentiate those two 
different aspects there. Why, why are we having a difference between preparation and performance? And the way I would sum that up is that um, the, the preparation phase is really talking about nutrition programming um, to go along with training periodization. Um, so what, what is the nutrition practice that is necessary to um, lead up to proper performance and maintain health? Um, while this theme too is more focused on acute um, performance nutrition strategies, focusing on um, performance optimization and recovery um, and, and key training sessions. And there's, there's many goals associated with that um, to promote optimal performance, um, uh, things such as in, in improving um, secondary goals such as gut comfort, and um, also um, providing nutrition support for health and uh, proper adaptation for exercise and competitive events. Yeah, and, and also though, I think it's worth mentioning um, that we did talk about in theme one, the importance of foundations, which are, which are of course critical. So before you even consider um, sort of the pre, during and post event eating strategies, which we'll get into in a minute, the foundations are particularly important, aren't they? I mean, if you don't get sort of the foundations right, these these strategies that we'll discuss are perhaps not as important. Uh, absolutely, and, I, and that's the reason why we have that as theme one, and it's really the, the deepest um, component of the paper as far as what we cover. Um, you know, I think there's too much focus now on just hearing um, individuals who work with athletes who are, who are or competitive themselves who just focus on pre and post exercise nutrition and they kind of think that they have sports nutrition figured out but there's so much more to it than that. Absolutely and I like, I like the way various people have um, provided visualizations of how we should interpret this information and the relevance that it has to the bigger picture. Um, so I'm thinking for example uh, Professor Asker you can created um, a while ago this this uh, sort of triangle, which is a hierarchy, um, you know, um, in this regard, where you've got foundational nutrition, um, habits, behaviors, quality of food, sleep, those sorts of things. Um, um, and then at the very tip, you've got supplements, for example, which helps to illustrate the overriding importance of the basics. Um, and as you work your way up these things, um, you know, they, they all play a role, but you just need to get it the right way around because what lots of people do is they get this hierarchy the wrong way up, don't they? Where the focus is all about supplements and, you know, protein and caffeine and, and carbs, uh, supplements, not necessarily about food. They don't necessarily take a food first approach. So that's why we, we like to use that phrase, food first. Absolutely. I'm totally with you. So, um, there's all sorts of angles here that I wanted to get into, and as always mentioned, you know, folks should be reading this position stand to get the the bulk of what we're discussing. The purpose of this is to eke out different aspects of this information, delve into bits um, a bit deeper, but also ensure some context is ensured so that people interpret this stuff right. Um, so before we get into the juicier parts of performance nutrition. Um, as it relates to um, things like uh, uh, carbohydrates and protein and so on. Let's just quickly get into hydration because hydration I find interesting. I've done podcasts on hydration with people who've done lots of research on this. There's always some very interesting perspectives about how important hydration is, the effects of dehydration, and you hear people talk about, you know, you lose X percent of body weight that has a certain impact on on performance. Um, what you know? What what was it that you guys discovered um, that is relevant um, and and meaningful when it comes to hydration? Because there's a lot of mixed messages in that area. Well, I, I think our focus overall is to to still give evidence based guidelines on um, fluid uh, fluid intake recommendations for pre event pre exercise. Um, some of the uh, things to consider for during uh, exercise um, and, and competition, but also for um, post-exercise um, and training recovery, and um, just really outlining the, the importance of, of hydration, uh, why it's important to physiology and the promotion of um, not only performance, but, 
but um, a physical performance, but also a cognitive performance, and um, and to give guidelines um, and showing the the relevance of uh, recovery that it's not just at, um, protein and carbohydrate, but also um, fluid intake. That's uh, very important. So, what are the what are the consequences then that that we can be fairly confident of of getting our hydration practices wrong? I mean, what you know, there are extremes, obviously, but. For, for us as practitioners or for athletes that are listening to this, you know, why, why should they be taking this seriously? Or is it, is it maybe not as important as we thought? No, I, I think it's still important for um, aerobic performance especially. Um, losses of uh, body weight greater than 2%, I think it's still pretty clear that that can affect uh, or can compromise aerobic exercise performance, but also decrease cognitive function. Yeah, and it, I mean... Things like cognitive function, and we'll talk about that with carbohydrates and so on, is something that people forget, don't they, that is an important part of performance. It's not just about achieving adequate hydration as it relates to muscle function, but cognitive function, uh, particularly with tactical sports, decision-making, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so um, when we talk about hydration, we also... Um, hear the word electrolytes and we get into things like salt and you know sodium potassium relationships and so on but I mean in that area what, what you know what is actually relevant because there are so many products on the market talking about people focusing on supplements but but it is there's this big push for you know products with very special um, electrolyte mixtures electrolyte tablets there's electro electrolytes added to various sports drinks what you know, what is the relevance of electrolytes to hydration, you know, in the real world? Well, I think when you talk about electrolytes, I think that the focus or the key player is still sodium in that um, I think we, we should all recognize that um, athletes can get still most of the sodium um, and should be in an area of focus from their diet. Um, pre-exercise um, and pre-training will, uh, diet will provide a good amount of sodium, but for um, endurance events, particularly very long endurance events, um, sodium is a key player for um, these carbohydrate electrolyte beverages, much more so than some of the other electrolytes that you're seeing. Um, but keeping in mind that you know there's there's very uh, athletes are very um, individualized as far as what we would expect to see in sodium losses. And for for, for people that are trying to get their hydration strategies right. Um, as it relates, for example, to the sodium situation. I mean, what what is it that they can do? What is it that practitioners can do to determine the status of someone's electrolytes? Um, you know, uh, whether that's something you feel is relevant or not. Um, yeah, for me, it's not something that I put very high on the list. It's more of looking at um, the overall diet and. Uh, assessing, uh, I guess, what sort of problems an athlete might have as it relates to cramping. Again, sodium is the electrolyte most um, associated with that. Um, so, you know, providing opportunities for athletes and education um, for so they understand the importance of sodium in the diet, but also um, from an electrolyte beverage. So, so would you say then that the bulk of these electrolyte supplements um, that are very heavily promoted out there? are probably not as important to people, um, whereas their general daily intake of uh, minerals like sodium in the diet might play a more important role. So the quality of diet, again, it's that food first thing and let the body body manage it, might be um, a more important factor, whereas there may be certain unique scenarios, but then that's best consulted with a, a sports nutrition specialist. I agree. I think for most athletes, I think this is more a story of the diet and then overall hydration. And um, needs. So, talking about consequences, I mean, what what would the because people will take supplements and they will take um, these um, pills and powders and so on that contains these electrolytes. I mean, are there any concerns for athletes in overconsuming electrolytes? Is that going to have a negative impact on? Performance possibly. Um, potentially, I mean, some of the, the electrolytes outside of sodium, such as magnesium, um, can be detrimental. Um, cause actually cause um, uh, gastric effects and, and cramping, muscle cramping. 
Uh, potassium can be quite problematic. Um, it could be lethal in some cases if you're taking high amounts of potassium. Um, as far as when you say pills and powders, um, sodium is a concern um, if the athlete is not drinking enough. Uh, it can certainly it can cause um, more um, water to be taken up into the gastric, uh, or I should say the small intestine, and that can contribute to cramping itself because of the, um, the, the osmolarity difference in the GI tract associated with taking um, powders and pills. Yeah, and of course, you know, the, the, the overconsumption of, of water obviously can lead to um, terrible consequences, which we do hear from time to time, both in sports environments, but also with kids nightclubbing and that sort of thing. It can be, yes. it can be a pretty, pretty serious scenario. Um, so if we if we focus more specifically then um, on on the three areas here for hydration then so before, during and after what 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 did you guys find um, from the evidence that um, that we should be doing before exercise? So yeah, it seems like athletes are always interested in, in how much to drink um, prior to exercise, and um, the, the recommendation is is, is a, a general guideline of five to ten milliliters per kilogram body weight every uh, two to four hours. Um, but e even when you expand that time frame pre-exercise, um, uh, teaching the athlete that urine color is also a, a, a good um, estimate of overall hydration, um, particularly if their hydration practices are spread out throughout the day instead of just taking high amounts of, of fluid uh, one or two hours before. Um, the five to ten milliliters per kilogram is really for more of the acute pre-exercise, two to four hours, but again supporting that education for um, hydration and, and a clearer urine color um, throughout the day is very important for the pre-exercise period. Yeah, and um, once we get to the during exercise bit, I think this is where it gets really, really interesting because I don't know if I'm incorrect in assuming this, but the the the, the prehydration bits relatively simple, and the advice is pretty much the same for everyone, um, um, you know, based on body weight that sort of thing. But during exercise, it gets really complicated because there's and huge... it's much more controversial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, we we recognize the controversy around the the during exercise um, hydration recommendations. Uh, we we still feel like the bulk of the evidence is pretty strong to support um, keeping body weight losses to to less than two percent um, because of that that particular number is associated with um, decrements in performance, um, specifically aerobically. You may have more flexibility if you are less of an aerobic athlete. Um, strength and power may be more like three to five percent of a body weight loss. But um, trying to just have that general goal of, of, of monitoring and being aware of what sort of weight loss you have um, um, from, from exercise, I think is important and it's something that should be monitored and, and an athlete should be aware of. So during exercise, what, I mean, what are the what are the main scenarios that's going to have um, the most significant impact on inducing dehydration whereby people really do need to get on point with their hydration strategies during exercise? What, what, are, the, what are the most common scenarios? Well, I would say the longer the event, the more important it is to have a hydration regimen. Um, begin early and do not rely on thirst as your indicator for when to drink. Um, with that general advice in mind, uh, which we lay out well in the paper, I think um, at that point the issue becomes volume, how much do you drink, um, you know, several gulps every 15 to 20 minutes may work for some, some people prefer more concrete numbers, um, at that point we may recommend um, specific guidelines of, um, I think it's, it's 0.4 liters to 0.8 liters per hour. Um, as the general range that the individuals can handle within the gastric cavity without causing GI upset and without causing frequent urination. And I, I know because I've, I've read um, a little bit into this topic, um, one sort of school of thought is issues where you're consuming um, a relatively large amount of fluid that then potentially might make you need to go for a pee during an event, i.e. during the middle of a marathon, um, during a triathlon, that sort of thing. 
um, which could impede performance. Either you're extremely polite and you actually stop and go to the loo, or you just let it all go, so to speak. But these things potentially can affect performance, and there is an argument that you know um, competing in a very minor state of dehydration, um, um, which is something you habitually have done during training, is not necessarily going to impact performance. But of course, that's a very complex strategy that maybe you'd need help with. But what, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's interesting, and that's why we were tr we tried to be um, pretty. I, I don't want to say vague, but we we were pretty open in our recommendations for for during hydration because the amount of individual vari variation as it relates to hydration and performance and and practice and how um, athletes um, tolerate um, fluid intake during during um, competition and, and exercise. Yeah, because I mean, it's an interesting one, and it's also a very personal one. And and uh, I think the overriding advice for anyone that's going to experiment with these things is don't experiment on race day. Obviously, you need to try these things out well in advance um, to and, test. Yeah, and that was a strategy we had uh, that we we brought up in the paper at, at the very front of this section. We we focused on the issue of hyperhydration and dehydration and what are the possible effects that could occur from those uh, that process and that um, end result. Um, and, and as long as people who work with athletes understand that and the athletes themselves, um, hopefully that information will help them tailor their own um, hydration protocol. Yeah. Um, now, just quickly, because cramping, you've mentioned it, it, it is something that's of interest and there is this um, you know, this belief that it's normally to do with electrolyte imbalance. When I say belief, I'm not, I'm not saying that's what scientists tell us, but in the public arena, people, oh, I'm getting cramping, you know, I've obviously got my electrolytes out of balance. But, you know, what, I mean, as far as what the evidence tells us um, as it relates to skeletal muscle cramping and that relationship to, to hydration strategies, what, 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 what does the evidence tell us about that? Um, well, I, I would say is that when anytime you think about uh, muscular cramping, um, a, a lot of it is related to suboptimal or, or poor training practice. Um, oftentimes, athletes may not have trained the way they should have. Um, that can lead to um, uh, cramping. Um, also, fatigue, so overtraining. Um, not enough sleep leading up to competition. Those are factors that uh, are often overlooked. And unfortunately, a lot of times the recommendation is to provide a banana, um, which is something that uh, I always find annoying. I continue to see that on TV and in um, events. I see individuals uh, consuming bananas all the time to try to um, improve their performance by reducing the cramping. But um, so thinking about those uh, other factors, non-nutritional factors, but outside of that, it's, it's, it's sodium and hydration are, are the first um, two factors that, that tend to come up in the literature. And then farther down the line, and oftentimes not the problem, are other electrolytes such as potassium and magnesium. Yeah, yeah. So that's before, that's during, and then what about after exercise? Because this, apart from a good slug of liquid after one's exercise, um, a lot of people don't realize that hydration uh, still needs to be tackled for a while after exercise. Obviously, there's different types of exercise. So perhaps you could take us through um, what, what we need to be doing there? Well, um, I, I think the concern that I see here is that um, I, th I think some of the athletes are getting the message about carbohydrate um, and, and protein, but oftentimes you don't see enough fluid in the, in the recovery period. So you may see that chocolate milk, you may see um, some sort of dairy product to promote um, protein recovery. Um, protein related recovery, but you don't see enough fluid. and. Um, Hopefully, when um, when everything related to hydration is looked at, um, as far as pre-exercise, during, understanding weight differences from pre to post competition and, and exercise, um, you can help tailor the hydration, the post-exercise hydration, um, by following very simple guidelines, which is basically a, a, about a liter, a little bit over a liter, uh, 1.25 liters specifically to 1.5 liters uh, for every kilogram of weight lost mm. in every period. Okay, thanks. Now, um, although we'll talk about um, 
things like uh, supplements and, and alcohol um, and how they affect this since we're talking about hydration um, so firstly um, we'll get into the favorite topic first then so the relevance of alcohol and hydration Oh well, yeah. Hydration. Um, we we cover that in um, in in, a, in an area of the paper as far as the, how it affects overall athletic performance and recovery. But at, um, but the big thing about alcohol is that it will um, promote um, dehydration over time, and it doesn't take a whole lot. Um, just a matter of three to four um, drinks can create uh, a three to four percent um, decrease in in body weight over time. Um, as it relates to um, uh, more urination, more body water losses. So it certainly has a significant impact on, on, on hydration. Um, and then, and obviously there are other drinks that, that are, you know, believed to be, um, you know, it will increase dehydration like caffeine, but maybe that's not so, is that right? Um, not so much, especially in, in small doses. So if you're just having a cup of coffee here and there, um, but not drinking coffee throughout the day, um, generally that has a very minimal impact on hydration. So, so for athletes that are involved in events that occur multiple times in a day, um, much like when we talk about carbohydrate um, repletion, we'll, we'll have a similar conversation. But for people where... Um, faster rehydration you know whereby just an average you know days um diet you'll eventually rehydrate just doing what you normally do but with regards to timings is there any relevance to the speed at which the body rehydrates and and um you know if you have another event within only a few hours uh, or even less than that is that where we should be taking this more seriously and, and so what i'm saying is how important is time um, That's a great point. That when, when time becomes an issue and you have multiple events such as a tournament, these specific guidelines for body weight for pre, during, and post um, should be followed more closely. Okay, great. Now, supplements, we'll talk about other kinds of supplements later, but um, there are scenarios where someone wants to um, increase their ability to retain fluid or water. Um, what, what you know? What, what what supplement strategies exist to do that? And um, as far as the evidence is is concerned, what actually work? Well, um, there there's still uh, reports of, of glycerol being used as a, a volume expander, but that is um, con that's currently prohibited by the, the anti-doping agency, the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. Yeah. So although it works, don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but actually, what 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 is um, what is important though is that there are various types of um, substances found in our diet that do influence the way in which body holds water, um, as well as uh, supplements of things like creatine. I mean, what, what impact will the diet have on on this? Just out of interest. The diet, um, well, more so the diet is, is, I think it's related more to the sodium content. The more sodium that's consumed, um, it helps drive the desire to drink, and it also helps with fluid retention. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so sodium um, is important that that educational topic is brought up with athletes and that you know, we have this public health message uh, about reducing sodium intake, but for athletes, oftentimes, um, we, we certainly do not want to restrict, and in some cases, we need to be very strategic about how much sodium is consumed in the diet mm -hmm. and think about strategies to get that in. Yeah, okay, great. So, let, let's get into the big one now. So, um, we talked in, in the last episode in theme one about the importance of carbohydrate. We, we got into topics like metabolic efficiency and metabolic flexibility. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the difference between, you know, not enough, too much and um, adequate and, you know, the, the specifically the whole point about, you know, ensuring muscle glycogen levels are maintained and, and you, 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 we talked about this term about availability, um, which seems to me a very key um, topic now. Um, in terms of performance, um, you know, what does the evidence tell us uh, about the role of carbohydrate? Bearing in mind, um, as we've discussed many times, um, you know, the, the whole idea of carbohydrates, some people 
like to have no carbohydrates for various reasons and so on but the evidence strongly points in one direction what what you know what are, what was the evidence on that well i would um describe this quickly in, in two different ways um i, I would say that uh, for, for when it's important to train and compete at the highest intensities uh, carbohydrate is um, the fuel of the utmost importance um, also with events that last for extended periods of time, particularly uh, above 60 minutes of time, um, at, uh, consumption of carbohydrate within the session is important to continue to provide metabolic benefits to support performance. So, um, so the purpose of this session uh, or this section of the paper is to, to focus on um, how carbohydrates will um, not only promote performance by uh, providing available carbohydrate to match the fuel demands of the session, but to also strategically um, provide enough carbohydrate to prevent hypoglycemia during the session and to promote optimal glycogen restoration post-exercise. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, the heading um, in this section of the paper and um, um, as we get into this is achieving adequate muscle glycogen stores is a, I mean, that's a very poignant statement, isn't it? Because people, you know, th th they have various anxieties as it relates to carbohydrates, um, but it's this idea of having adequate muscle glycogen. Um, you know, and, and you further go on to say that manipulating nutrition and exercise in the hours and days prior to an important exercise bout allows an athlete to commence the session with glycogen stores that are commensurate with the estimated fuel cost of the event. So an important factor there is perform, performance nutrition um, requirements from carbohydrates doesn't necessarily start in just the meal before the event, it, it can go well before that, can't it? Yeah, absolutely, and I would, I would take that step further and say that still the number one important factor for maintaining these optimal glycogen levels is daily carbohydrate intake. Mm. So understanding what you need for the type of um, training volume and competitive volume that you have to support this optimal level is really dictated by your daily carbohydrate intake. And I, I know because Louise Burke, um, I'll have to find the link and I'll add it to these notes, did a brilliant interview on this topic where she talked about um, the importance of not just being metabolically efficient but also being metabolically flexible. Um, and we've discussed this, um, you and I, in the previous episodes but also I've had several podcasts devoted to this. But perhaps we could just quickly delve back into that because I feel it is an important topic that where people miss the point is... Yes, you can um, train uh, low carbohydrate, um, but when it comes to performance, clearly carbohydrate is king. But if you don't recognize that how you um, interact with food on an average day or training days, that, that also um, trains your metabolism, it trains this metabolic flexibility or, or can make you metabolically inflexible, is a consequence of what you do. Um, so simply just suddenly having carbs, you know, for performance on a performance day isn't necessarily going to solve the problem if you're not getting it right at other times. Um, yeah. Maybe you could expand on that just quickly for us. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and, and the message that I would um, emphasize here is that there are certainly papers that um, outline what it seems to be interesting with more of a keto adaptive diet or a low carbohydrate um, higher fat diet in that it, it may promote um, improved markers um, of fat oxidation or the expression of proteins involved in promoting fat oxidation um, but the problem with that is that again fat oxidation improvements and these marginal improvements have not really been shown to improve performance and yet, the, going back to the basic exercise physiology 101, nutrition 101, and metabolism, carbohydrate is the most important macronutrient when it's important to train hard and compete hard. And what we are seeing that, that doesn't get the publicity um, from many trainers out there is the fact that when you are um, reducing your metabolic flexibility by increasing your fat intake, decreasing your carbohydrate intake, you're affecting the specific metabolic effect, um, pathways that promote um, efficient carbohydrate oxidation via the aerobic pathways. 
And that is a problem, especially when it's important to train and compete and perform at high intensities. Yeah. So I think it's pretty clear. I think the evidence is pretty clear. They can read that in your position stand. Um, I've actually covered that topic with um, various people, including Trent Stanningworth, uh, John Hawley, Louise's um, uh, other half, of course, um, for just a bit more information and context uh, for the listeners. Um, that would be episode, oh, I'm going to forget. No, episode 45 of Trent Stanningworth, Carbohydrate Periodization, um, and episode 51, Carbohydrate Availability and Training Adaptation with, with John Hawley, uh, just reference there so um, for performance I, I think that's pretty clear but also um, for the purposes of glyco glycogen restoration which is obviously an important goal here particularly you mentioned the word tournaments people who do multiple events in one day or where they're using the same muscles that have had depleted glycogen stores um, very early the next day perhaps would also be relevant what I mean, what you know, what's the um, the role here and importance of carbohydrate intake for glycogen restoration? So multiple events um, over the course of a, a 24-hour period. Um, the, the guidelines I think are important, or I, I consider these more ceiling guidelines. So these are like the, the maximal guidelines that I think would help an athlete um, restore some glycogen up to multiple events. And that, that's usually the one to four hours pre-exercise, thinking about that pre-exercise training meal. And the general guideline is, is about one gram to four grams um, for the same amount of time. So one to four hours um, pre-exercise as a part of that meal. Yeah, now, and we'll get into this in a minute, but it, it is important though, as we, you know, we're, we're sort of compartmentalizing everything as carbohydrates and we'll talk about protein now, but we don't eat carbs, we don't eat protein, we eat food that contains these things. So obviously there's a, a combination of, of these things all going in into our athletes' mouths. Um, and um, that's an important consideration um, um, for this. Um, so before we discuss that in a bit more detail, let's just quickly go into protein. And we've, we've gone into that in quite a lot of detail in the last podcast. Um, but as it relates to performance, what is the role um, that protein plays that the evidence um, shows us? Well, there's very little evidence to suggest that protein in itself will promote or improvements in performance. Um, so there's, there's been some claims of that, uh, and there's been some reports of um, some studies that have very, very high levels of, of protein intake, um, but there's certainly some um, methodology concerns with the, the couple studies that do exist and there's, there's not um, strong evidence that protein directly impacts performance. Um, so did, uh, I but I want to add, I want to yeah. add to that, that's a good point though, because yeah. you, as you, the point that you keep making that is wonderful about that we eat food. Mm. Uh, one thing about protein that we can say is that it does have um, somewhat of a role in glycogen restoration and that it can help enhance the role of carbohydrate in improving um, uh, glycogen restoration. And that key study that suggested that and even when you have um, lower levels of carbohydrate availability or lower levels of um, post-exercise, post-training uh, carbohydrate intake, when, when protein is, is elevated a little bit, it helps enhance um, glycogen um, restoration to the level that um, it's basically equivalent to a carbohydrate-only recovery meal. Yeah, and then, I mean, there's going to be a variety of considerations here, which would include um, things like palatability, I would imagine, um, but also uh, dietary preference. Sometimes people just prefer to do that, don't they? And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to have protein, I think might be an interesting quick topic yeah. for us to get into, because, you know, it's all about, I mean, the obsession with protein is quite interesting. Um, but again, if it's not important, that doesn't mean we should exclude it either, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's important to recognize the, the science is telling us there's more than one way to do things, and it, and it certainly will go along with what many athletes would prefer as far as their eating plans already. Um, so just having, I think, context here and, and understanding um, uh, what, what the science is currently saying, I think there's, there's multiple ways to, um, to get to many of these goals. Yeah, and also um, I think I mentioned this in the, in the first of our three podcasts where 
Um, uh, you, you folks need to remember, of course, that you know when you eat a meal, it takes a while for that food to be digested, absorbed, and distributed around the body. So, for example, with these amino acids that you're looking to get from your proteins may be traveling around the bloodstream and um, reaching um, uh, muscle tissue um, during exercise um, from a meal that you ate beforehand. Therefore, your, your sort of desire to consume these things during training may not be necessary anyway. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's interesting when you dig into the literature that looks at that topic. Um, do you control the pre-exercise meal? Do you not? And in order to see the true effect of the supplement. But in reality, athletes are eating throughout the day. There are these amino acids that are available. Yeah. Yeah. I th well, uh, we're always in danger of over-sciencing this stuff, aren't we? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. Um, so... Uh, I just wanted to go back to this business of we eat food, food first. You know, it's not carbs, it's not protein, it's food. But also the wider um, topic of the importance of food um, for athletes who travel. I, I mean, this is topical because the Olympics are going on, of course. And one one thing that traveling athletes have to deal with is foods that are not familiar. It's not whether it's a cultural issue, whether it's a palatability issue, you know, there's so many different things, but that can also influence an athlete's desire and um, opportunity to benefit from these foods because they may or may not like those foods. The foods may not be as available. Um, there's all sorts of factors that can, can affect, you know, you can't just assume that they get proteins, they get carbs. There are going to be things that will influence this. And also, of course, um, nerves. Uh, some athletes get very nervous before an event, which may influence their desire or ability to consume these substances. What, and that, that, that exact scenario probably evokes more in, in anxiety, and they're mm. probably more reluctant to try um, some of these different foods to meet their uh, nutrition needs. So let's let's go into dietary supplements and ergogenic aids. Um, you know, I mentioned. Um, Asker's um, hierarchy, uh, uh, you know, where people tend to get it the wrong way around and they focus heavily on, um, on supplements. And of course, a lot of supplements are associated with huge amounts of claims, but not so much um, evidence supports their use, particularly in the context of performance. What, what, you know, what, what supplements do actually appear to have some benefits? Well, um, in many ways, this section of the paper was the hardest to um, put together. Um, we had a very calculated um, approach to this, and we wanted to be very careful. We're certainly not advocating um, for supplement use, but we're very open that, um, to the fact that there are some evidence-based um, supplements that have promoted performance. So we tried to focus on them with most of the text uh, being related to the education of the athlete and, um, and also the professional working with the athlete to understand the pros and cons of supplement use and all the barriers that you would face in going down that road. Um, so again, we outlined a, a few supplements that we think could have some benefit, but most of this is education associated with dietary supplement intake and practice. Yeah, and I, I think the biggest concern, particularly the elite athletes um, that are monitored for doping and such, the biggest concern there is, is the supplement they're taking safe? If we, if we even get to the point that there may actually be some benefit to them um, based on real actual hard evidence, the next consideration is, is it going to be um, contaminated by something? And... Um, I guess at the end of the day, the only really safe way of avoiding contaminants is to not consume supplements, isn't it? Uh, I would definitely say that, and, and that's, a, that's an educational point that I don't think is focused on enough. Uh, I think mainly in fear that the athlete will go somewhere else for their nutrition advice, mm. but we really need to reconsider how we address that, that subject and um, making sure that these points are, 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 are placed out there for the athlete to understand um, early on in, in working with them. Because we certainly can't um, guarantee safety with dietary supplements. And so not only are we doing a cost-to-benefit ratio, but we're also looking at a risk-to-benefit um, with any dietary supplement use. 
Yeah, and I, I, you see, part of the problem, I think, is the way supplements are marketed, the packaging, that they, they almost sort of guarantee a certain effect. And even with substances that do have some good data behind them, like caffeine, for example, which you can get, you know, your standard uh, anhydrous uh, supplements, caffeine supplements, you can get, you know, caffeinated chewing gum, there's all sorts of stuff out there. But again, um, you know, a lot of these products aren't, necessarily tested for BAM products and so on but also they're not necessarily going to work in any individual for example and I'm picking on caffeine um, caffeine is something that people interact with in their day-to-day diets um, they might consume tea or coffee throughout the day they may consume soft drinks like diet colas or regular colas that contains caffeine so simply ingesting caffeine when you're consuming caffeine all day long may not necessarily have an impact anyway um, is there anything relevant there that you that you picked up on, or? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's certainly the case. Um, athletes should be aware of what uh, how much caffeine they're consuming and working on that. Because some there's so much variability in the in the caffeine response that um, some athletes may not get any benefit at all. Um, but I think what's what's interesting in this field is that we over the past couple of years we're recognizing that for those who are caffeine responsive, you actually need much less caffeine um, to have an ergogenic benefit. Yeah, I mean it, it 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 is exciting as we discussed, and we we got into the sort of you know um, the whole carbohydrate mouth rinsing idea of you know brain sensing and all that stuff. It is it's pretty mind boggling and you know instantly you realize that more is not necessarily better in fact more may have a um, um, a more you know debilitating effect on signaling or whatever i'm not an expert at all in that area but i'm assuming you know that can have that impact yeah um, just for instance yeah. a few years ago i mean the recommendation was like six to nine milligrams per kilogram and for again for those who were responsive to caffeine mm-hmm. could gain some sort of performance benefit from it but now it's it's much lower around two to three as a, as a starting point two to three milligrams per kilogram so clearly um you know you you're gonna have to trial these things um before you even get to this performance stage because um, you don't know if you're a, I know some people hate these terms of responder, non-responder, but you certainly don't want to leave it to game day to find this stuff out. <laughs> um, um, yeah, actually, it's not just uh, whether or not you get a response. I mean, you may you may not get an ergogenic response, but you yeah. may get a GI response associated with caffeine consumption. Well, you read my that's mind. Good. So that's actually what I wanted to quickly delve into because um, there is there is this issue. I've got into this in various podcasts, but um, the, the, the other strategy that one needs to be mindful of with... Um, um, carbohydrates in particular uh, but all sorts of foods can um, have a negative um, effect on GI function um, is the fact that the, the the negative consequence of that nutritional strategy could have some pretty uh, disturbing effects and we've all, if you YouTube these things it's pretty horrible what can happen during an event um, when people's um, GIs react negatively to their pre-event feeding Yes, um, and you mentioned, of course, because uh, um, it's your favourite topic of uh, gluten intolerance. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'll quickly move on from there. Um, so there were there were a few special populations. I didn't want to get into all these different areas, but I think the sort of the vegan and vegetarian athlete is um, an important one because they there are many of them I've encountered quite a few myself um, and this is another area which is um, you know uh, rich with um, uh, uh, myths and fallacies about uh, uh, you know the, the, some of them feel that if they're not eating animal protein they're just not going to get the gains that they want to get um, perhaps you could discuss you know some of the things that you guys have found as it relates to vegetarian athletes um, well I think it's important to, to focus on uh, I think understanding the different types of um, the vegetarian diets and recognizing that in the literature um, we, we know that a vegetarian diet can be nutritionally adequate 
um, and can contain high amounts of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, all all the foods that are, are necessary to help promote performance um, or, or or maintain a performance that's expected. Um, we, there's not enough literature to suggest that um, a vegetarian diet of any kind will pr um, promote and improve performance over um, a non-vegetarian diet. Um, but the concerns are associated with um, when you break it down, if athletes are becoming more and more restrictive, um, subtracting individual food groups, um, you know, that's when we get into a concern of specific nutrient deficiencies. And it's not just the, the players that we've all heard about, such as vitamin B12 and, and uh, not getting enough protein potentially, but it's also creatine in some cases, uh, we may not get enough of that, and also carnosine, which are, are coming out not only from the dietary supplement world as an interesting um, area to focus on, but how much of that is actually in a vegan diet? And the answer to that is, is, is none for creatine and carnosine um, um, specifically. Yeah, I've done, I've done some uh, podcasts on on that um, with various experts. Um, creatine, I've, I've done with uh, Craig Searle and also Eric Rawson. We've done uh, podcasts on both performance and health-related aspects. That's very interesting. Um, so just quickly moving on, um, extreme environments. Now, you know, um, if one thinks of um, things like uh, uh, Tour de France or the various marathons um, or even more extreme Things like you know those uh, marathon de sable, those, those sort of crazy events at crazy environments, altitudes, crossing the Yukon Delta. There's all sorts of things that the athletes will put themselves into, but the ones that are fairly common will be things like heat, cold, humidity, and altitude issues. Um, was it, you know I mean one's imagination can go in various directions with this, but as far as the evidence is concerned, is there anything um, that you guys found that would help? Um, in terms of sports nutrition and performance? Um, well, I guess you could focus on these individually, but um, I, I would say with, with altitude, um, understand the physiological adaptations that um, can occur, um, but will be limited if an athlete's iron status is not sufficient, I think is um, first and foremost very important. Understanding the um, in, impact of proper energy intake, um, protein, fluids, and iron and antioxidant-rich foods for the, um, the athlete training and competing at altitude, but also understanding the goal of carbohydrate and why carbohydrate is so important when oxygen may not be um, at, you know, readily or at, at high concentrations at, at altitude. Yeah, and uh, you know... At the end of the day, I just recommend people read the position stand to get into that um, into that in more detail. Um, so for the final part of, of this, um, we've done really well, by the way. We've managed to get through these um, final three themes. Um, in theme four, you quite briefly get into, but it's good that you did, was roles and responsibilities of, I mean, here you put sports dietitian, but globally there are various people that um, that are in a position where they will be recommending um, sport and exercise nutrition advice, um, whether they're uh, registered dietitians, whether they're registered nutritionists, uh, registered sports nutritionists, there's variations on these themes. And of course, there are people in gray areas, exercise physiologists, you're gonna have other people, uh, personal trainers, and there's all sorts of people that will make nutrition recommendations who, um, um, and I tread very carefully here, who may or may not understand um, scope of practice in these things. But, you know, in terms of um, um, the roles and responsibilities of these people, you know, is there anything that you feel um, that, you know, we should be discussing here? I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up too. Um, you know, what I would say to this topic is, um, you know, there's certainly areas of sports nutrition where people can read recommendations and provide uh, recommendations that are written out, such as what's in this position paper. But to truly understand and work with an athlete throughout the course of training and competition, it's important that you understand a, a variety, uh, have a good understanding of a variety of um, a background in um, not only performance nutrition specific to, to, to training and, and competition, but you have to understand clinical nutrition. You have to have a good understanding of nutrition science. 
exercise physiology and the application and the ability to critically analyze research papers in this, in this emerging field. Without that, um, you are potentially in a situation where you could do be a disservice to the athletes because there's several opportunities for you to give bad advice. And that's why we, we focus on that um, in this paper. We give um, we outline the roles and responsibilities that an individual should have expertise in and pursue continued education so they can keep up with the emerging science. And we also outline the two premier areas where people can, um, who are interested in this can work toward receiving um, specialized credentialing, and those being um, the board-certified specialist in sports dietetics through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, but also through sportsoracle.com, um, um, the ILC certification in, in sports dietetics. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying for anyone, you know, it takes a lot of effort to um, not just learn about this. I mean, you know, hell, this is what eighty-eight um, podcasts, um, each an hour long, and we've barely scratched the surface. Um, you've you've got your undergraduate degrees, you've got your degrees, you've got your credentialing programs. Um, um, in various parts of the world, there's different versions of these. There's postgraduate um, professional development programs, like you mentioned, the um, IOC diploma. I also plug the ISSM diploma when I say that. Um, there's all sorts of programs that exist, but I think my concern is where people are giving advice where they haven't, uh, I think there's only one way to say this, they just haven't bothered to get enough education. And that's where you need to say, do you know what, this isn't, from, this isn't my area, I'm going to refer to those that are. But it is a funny thing, nutrition generally, I guess, um, but sports nutrition is, is an area where everyone feels that they have a degree of expertise or... Um, or have the right to, to get into it. And it is a difficult one because there are those gray areas. I don't think that everyone has to be a registered practitioner to have some degree of input on this, but it's that understanding of scope of practice that I feel is a major problem. I, I agree, yeah. certainly. And we try to outline those um, areas within the paper. Yeah, no, and that's great. Um, I mean, it's a difficult one, and that's a topic which... Um, I'm just going to have to try and do a podcast on it. It's just that, you know, everyone everyone loves this topic, which is great, but not everyone wants to acquire, you know, the appropriate credentials in order to make a profession out of it, which is, um, you know, it's an ongoing issue. So yeah, you can apparently expand on that by just uh, looking at throughout the roles of a sports dietitian. Again, um, anyone that's received adequate training in this area, mm -hmm. uh, asking yourself the question: Can you properly assess nutrition needs and, and the currently uh, current dietary practices? Can you interpret biochemical tests? Can you conduct anthropometry and, and assess mm -hmm. that? And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, how strong are you in the area of medical nutrition therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So these are all areas that uh, professionals, um, soon to be professionals, need to pursue in order to, to be competent in this field. Absolutely. In fact, I, just a final point um, on this, because it's worth differentiating dietetics, nutrition, and sports nutrition. Um, perhaps you could help us understand that, because it... You know, having expertise in nutrition or having expertise in dietetics, neither of those necessarily means you have expertise in sports nutrition. What 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 is it that differentiates expertise um, in specifically in sports nutrition over and above those other two areas? Uh, the other two areas being what nutrition yeah. and dietetics and sports nutrition. Um, well, I mean, I, that's a, you can probably go f f pretty far into this discussion, but you know, in, here in the States, we, we think of um, dietetics as being the, the background that everyone needs to pursue in order to have that, um, uh, that wide breadth of understanding of nutrition science, um, life cycle nutrition, uh, metabolism, and then you build um, towards specific uh, sports dietetic and sports dietetics practice and um, sports nutrition science um, to, to kind of improve your, your knowledge and expertise in the area. Yeah, no, well, it's, just, it's, like, it's like that hierarchy um, of nutrition and sports nutrition and so on, is it? You've got your foundations first. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I was going. There's also, you know, you may have um, a solid understanding of nutrition. Um, and dietetics, but without also 
um, a strong knowledge base in in exercise science. Um, sure. It's very difficult to understand the needs of your athletes over and above the basics. Is is sort of where I was going with that. And 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 knowledge and education, it's an ongoing thing. It just goes on forever, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So listen, Travis, I really appreciate it. We did it. Um, this was part three of our three-part series. I can now say it officially. It was a three-part series on nutrition and athletic performance based on the um, the American College of Sports Medicine, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and Dietitians of Canada, latest joint position statement. Um, I know everyone will appreciate um, uh, you're coming on board and, and sharing your time over these um, past three podcasts. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Laura, and um, thank you for having me. And uh, please stay in touch. Yeah, no, I will. So that brings us to the end um, of not only today's podcast, but as I said, this the three part series. Um, if you look on uh, the GooPerformance.com website um, under podcasts, I will link to all the different papers, and I also will find that article with Louise Burke I mentioned that was an excellent um, an excellent article I recommend everyone reads um, as well as the notes and links to the other two podcasts episode 86 and 87 in this series um, for those that are interested in furthering their own knowledge and education um, with regards to the offerings from Guru Performance just go to our education section you can learn about our continuing, continuing professional development program uh, in sports and exercise nutrition and of course our ISSN diploma in sports nutrition postgraduate program and if you wish to um, further that to a master's degree in sports and exercise nutrition with me at Middlesex University you can also learn about that at uh, groupperformance.com so um, that brings us to the end I of course am Laurel Bannock and I look forward to bringing another episode to you very soon